This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saris, maker of indoor trainers, power meters, and bike racks. It's a company of cyclists making products they themselves want to use, like racks that attach to the hitch of your vehicle, which traditionally have had a pretty significant problem. You know, what we kept seeing is when you put your bikes on a hanging hitch rack, um, what happens when then you need to get into the back of, the, of your car? This is Sarah Ryder, consumer-centric strategist at Saris Racks. And this is the issue of hitch racks. If the rack is on, you're just not getting into the back of your SUV or van. It's blocked. I'm a mom of three kids, and I love to have a, a bike rack on my car. But I also go to the grocery store a couple times a week. I drive a hockey carpool. I... Taking a hitch rack on and off is the very definition of user-unfriendly. So Saris decided to revolutionize the whole idea and created the Glide, a hanging rack that, with the push of a button, pivots the rack away from your car. And really, this thing is amazing. It doesn't swing down and require you to muscle the weight of the bikes. It simply glides back without losing any height. Even with four bikes on the rack, you can do it with one hand. But we tried it on car after car after car with all sorts of different types of bikes. And, you know, we kept coming to the same conclusion of, oh my gosh, this is so easy. Saris launched the Glide with a Kickstarter campaign, and they met their funding goal in three days. Trust me, if you see this thing in action, you're going to want it. The Glide is available in a four-bike model for $4.99 or a five-bike model for $5.49, and it comes in three colors. So head to your local bike shop and check it out. That's the Saris Glide Hitch Rack. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. <sighs> Up in the cradle between Alaska and Russia, the Bering Sea is known for being both America's most productive fishing grounds and for being called the place that the sea breaks its back. It's remote, sparsely populated, and cold. All those things make it a dangerous place to work. But with all those fish up for grabs, thousands of men, and they are mostly men, on hundreds of boats, fish its waters each winter for cod and pollock, and most famously, crab. It's crab season on Alaska's Bering Sea. That's the beginning of the first episode of the reality TV show Deadliest Catch. On average, the Bering Sea will claim the life of one unlucky soul every week of the season. In the 1990s, Bering Sea crab fishing was hands down this country's most dangerous profession. Twelve boats sank during the decade. On average, eight fishermen died every year. And it wasn't like those deaths were spaced out over months and months. A typical crab season back then lasted maybe a few days or weeks. It was a race, with each boat trying to catch as much crab as possible in the least amount of time. People got tired, made bad decisions, and accidents happened. So yeah, Deadliest Catch was an appropriate name. But then the same year the show started airing was the year everything changed. Before 2005 and after 2005 are like night and day. Stephanie Joyce has been reporting a story for Outside about a crab boat that sank in the Bering Sea last winter. It was the first major accident in more than a decade. And it shook people. These kinds of accidents weren't supposed to happen anymore. 
In the fall of 2005, fisheries managers started divvying up the catch. So each boat was given a quota, which they could fish over the course of several months. So the race was over. That meant there was no reason to leave port in bad weather. There was no reason to stay awake for days on end. No reason to overload your boat. Suddenly, the deadliest catch wasn't so deadly. Of course, you know, the show kept its name, and it still spends a lot of time building up the dangers of fishing in the Bering Sea. But that narrative has become harder and harder to sustain over the years. Between 2006 and 2016, a single crab fisherman died. Not one vessel sank. Until February 11, 2017, when the disappearance of the fishing vessel destination shocked Alaska. It was shocking because it had been so many years, but it was also shocking because of the boat. When I started doing the reporting for this story, almost everyone told me, yeah, some boats, sure, we wouldn't be so surprised. But the destination? That vessel was a top-notch boat. I could line up however many crab boats there currently are, 70-ish, you know, line up the combination of that boat with that guy running it pretty high on my list of boats that wouldn't have a problem. Those are crab captains Casey McManus and Mike Matheson. And as word of the disaster spread through the fishing community, the surprise didn't just come from the fact that it was an experienced crew and that the wild days of the fishery were over. The circumstances of the boat's disappearance didn't make sense either. Fishing vessel destination, fishing vessel destination. This is Coast Guard aircraft, Channel 1-6. Bill Prout was in the wheelhouse of his crab boat when he heard the Coast Guard's first call out for the destination. No attention, all mariners. Just said that the EPIRB had gone off in a, in a certain position. And mariners keep a sharp lookout. It was around 6.30 in the morning, and he was getting ready to leave St. Paul Harbor. St. Paul and its southern neighbor, St. George, make up the Pribilof Islands. They're the closest land to the crab fishing grounds. Two tiny, treeless specks out in the middle of the Bering Sea. Prout didn't think much of the call-out at first. EPIRBs, or Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacons, are a safety device used to alert the Coast Guard that a vessel is in distress. They're designed to activate on contact with water, but in practice, they're often set off accidentally, especially in winter when crews are knocking ice off their boats. Prout had been in the wheelhouse with the radio turned on, and he hadn't heard the destination call for help. They probably don't even know their EPIRB is going off, he thought, and went back to plotting a course for the fishing grounds. Twenty minutes passed. Prout was on his way out of the harbor when he heard the Coast Guard calling for the silver spray for him. Called me up on the VHF radio and asked me if I could make a call out to the destination on the VHF on channel 16. I called out their name three times. It was a good proper way of doing it. Destination, destination, destination. Silver Spray uh, received us on channel 16. Prout looked at his navigational system. It showed the destination's last position was 23 miles away. Two hours at a good clip, but definitely within radio range. Maybe the guy on watch has the radio turned down, Prout thought. Or his music turned up. He wasn't worried. He knew the destination by reputation. It wasn't the kind of boat that was likely to be in trouble. Prout kept motoring towards the fishing grounds, still trying to hail the destination. Repeated it till maybe ten minutes later. I think I tried doing that three times. 
It was only then that Prout started to wonder if he should be worried. 23 miles wasn't that far. It couldn't hurt to go check it out. He changed course and headed for the destination's most recent position, about a mile west of St. George. The day before, an Arctic front had swept down from the northeast, dropping the temperature into the teens. It was blustery, with the wind blowing at 20 to 30 knots, but that was hardly out of the ordinary. Seas were a relatively modest 10 to 12 feet. It was an unusually cold, but otherwise fairly average morning for the Bering Sea in February. The sky was just starting to turn from black to gray when Prout arrived at the destination's last transmitted position around 9 a.m. You know, we have our big, big lights, our big sodium lights, brighten up everything. And I turned those off several times as we were going down there in case we could see some light from something. But there were no lights except his own, reflecting back at him in the twilight. Maybe they had a power failure and were drifting with their lights off, Prout thought. As the sun came up, his crew spotted a pair of buoys drifting past. It was unusual to see buoys, especially clean ones, floating out at sea. But Prout was still sure he would find the destination, maybe having trouble, but upright and intact. Then he smelled the diesel and saw the fuel slick. That could mean only one thing. The boat was gone. It didn't take long for news of the destination's disappearance to spread across the fleet, and questions about the circumstances surfaced almost immediately. The boat was only a mile offshore, a short ways from shelter. There were other fishing boats nearby, but no one heard a mayday. And the Coast Guard never found a life raft or any bodies. Which means that an experienced crew with an experienced captain in unremarkable weather, had something go so wrong, so fast, that there wasn't even time to tell somebody. Whatever it was, the crew hadn't seen it coming. A week before that cold morning out in the Bering Sea, the destination was in its home port, Sand Point. The tiny island town sits between the Alaska mainland and the Aleutian chain. It has two bars, one restaurant, and on a rare, clear day, a view across the water to the towering Pavlov volcano. At 110 feet, the blue and white destination dwarfed most of the other boats in the small harbor. Sandpoint had once been home to a whole fleet of Bering Sea fishing vessels, but consolidation in the crab fishery after 2005 had sent most of them south to Seattle. It was a point of pride for the local community that the destination still called Sandpoint home, and everyone knew the crew, even though most of the six didn't actually live there. They had pulled into port to re-rig the boat's gear for crab after spending January cod fishing. Cod fishing is exhausting, and the crew was tired, but there wasn't much time to rest. The processing plant in the Pribilof Islands was scheduled to close soon, since most of the fleet had already delivered their crab. The crew's only day off was February 5th, Super Bowl Sunday. Most of them went to the Anchor Inn Lounge to watch the game, a little sports bar that seats maybe 40 people. There's about eight, 14 tables. It's just really small. It's a minute from the harbor. You can see the harbor from here. Michelle Grunholt was bartending that day. It was good weather, 
warm enough that she set up a barbecue outside to grill hot dogs and hamburgers and chicken. Glenn, I had him watch the barbecue for a while, and he was pretty excited about that. Glenn is Charles Glenn Jones, the destination's engineer. Glenn, it was about his kids, because, you know, he had just gotten married. He'd settled down, and he was just doing so good. I was so happy for him. While Glenn tended the grill, Larry O'Grady, the relief captain, wandered around outside the bar, trying to get a cell phone signal to call his wife. He'd been fishing in the Bering Sea for decades, and his nickname, Limo Larry, was a nod to the legend that during his days as a young, single crab fisherman with money to burn, he would only ride around Seattle in limos. Larry was so happy-go-lucky, you know? He was always happy and positive. Jeff's other wife. The destination's captain was Jeff Hathaway. In Sandpoint, people knew Hathaway as an opinionated guy who liked to get into arguments over politics or the Mariners. He could ruffle feathers, but he was someone who commanded respect. People waited to get on the boat with Jeff because he was the best captain, the best crab fisherman out there. Hathaway had been fishing in the Bering Sea for almost 40 years. He'd been the captain of the destination for 23. When he had something to say about fishing, people listened. But there wasn't a lot of talk of fishing at the bar on Super Bowl Sunday. We were talking about football. It was football. It's just, it's football. (laughs) While most of the crew watched the game, one of the deckhands, Derek Seibold, took off to spend time with his three-year-old son, Eli. Seibold had been a high school football star in Washington and usually loved watching the Super Bowl. But it was his only chance to see Eli during their stop in town, and he wasn't going to miss it. The break from fishing didn't last, though. The next day, the crew was back out on the docks, making final preparations to leave. No one needed to be told what to do. Like Seibold, the other deckhands, Kai Hammock and Ray Vinsler, had been on the boat for years. On Tuesday morning, the destination pulled out of the harbor in Sandpoint, and headed west down the Aleutian chain towards Unalaska, the regional fishing hub. The weather had stayed relatively nice, and the boat chugged along at eight knots. The destination was carrying its usual deck load, 200 pots stacked in five layers. Since 2005, most boats had cut down on the number of pots they carried to save weight, but Hathaway liked his 200-pot configuration. It had been his go-to for years. On the way to Unalaska, the crew discovered an exhaust sleeve that needed replacing and a watertight seal with a slow leak. Crab boats have mechanical problems all the time. There's a reason there's an engineer on board. But the destination's problems were usually pretty minor. The boat's only major issue in recent years had been an occasional problem with the steering. Infrequently, but unpredictably, the rudder would stick hard to one side, causing the boat to suddenly veer in one direction or another. In the summer of 2016, the destination's owner had had the whole steering system flushed to fix the problem, and it appeared to have worked. In Unalaska, the crew needed to pick up more bait. Fishermen used squid and cod and herring to attract crab to their pots. The destination's bait freezer was already full, but fishing had apparently been slow out on the grounds, and boats were burning through their reserves. 
The destination's owner told Hathaway to stock up before heading out. Stopping in Alaska would add a day to the trip, an extra weight to the already heavy boat. But without bait, there would be no crab. At 6.30 on Wednesday evening, the destination pulled into Unalaska. Before arriving, Hathaway had called the Coast Guard. Since 1999, crabbers have been required to give the Coast Guard 24 hours notice before leaving for the fishing grounds. The rule is supposed to give the Coast Guard a chance to inspect crabbers for overloading before they leave port. But the inspections aren't mandatory. The Coast Guard petty officer who answered the phone had offered to send someone over, but Hathaway declined. He told them he'd had an inspection before the crab season in October, although the Coast Guard has no record of that. Once the boat was docked, Hathaway left for the hardware store to pick up a replacement part for the exhaust system. While he was gone, Dylan Hatfield showed up. Got a text from Kai. Let's see. Hatfield had been a crew member on the destination years earlier and had gotten his brother, Derek, the former football player, a job on the boat. He was friends with the entire crew. Jeff came back and he had the part and they went down and started putting that together. And then we were, me and Jeff and Ray and my brother were hanging out up in the alley. Hatfield had spent a lot of time in that galley over the years, listening to Hathaway tell stories, many of them about his early days fishing in the Bering Sea. And uh, we had this video on the destination, it was DHF, and it was um, some boats that Jeff had worked on in the 70s. And I remember him watching this video, and we're all sitting in the galley, and he's going, that guy's dead. That guy's dead. That guy's dead. Hathaway himself hadn't had any major accidents, but his wife, Sue, had. Sue and Jeff's story is like something straight out of a novel or a a movie. You know, they met in the 70s. She was working up there, working on crab boats, cooking cleaning, and he was an engineer. And, you know, they hated each other. She was the cook, he was the engineer, he'd fucking come up, put all his tools over the table, and she'd have to clean them off, and then, and then I remember she told me, he did it one time, and she took all his tools and threw them in his bunk, and he got all tweaked out of shape, and oh, what the fuck, you know, and she goes, well, I don't put my pots and pans in the engine room, don't keep your tools in my galley. In 1983, Sue, then Sue Pierce, was aboard the 98-foot Arctic Dreamer as it headed into port, fully loaded with crab. Just outside of Unalaska, a rogue wave hit the boat and it capsized. The six crew members barely had time to put on their survival suits and issue a mayday before the boat sank, leaving the crew swimming for their life raft. They eventually made it and were rescued hours later, cold and shaken. Sue never went back to Alaska. But Hathaway could never quit. He tried other things a few times, an ostrich farm, an asphalt business. But he always ended up back in the Bering Sea. By 11 p.m., the destination's crew had finished the repairs and eaten dinner. Hatfield said goodbye to everyone and headed back to his own boat. 
Without any fanfare, the destination slipped its mooring lines and left on Alaska, headed northwest towards St. Paul. The temperature was starting to drop, and the National Weather Service was predicting heavy freezing spray. That meant it was going to get cold enough that seawater would start freezing into ice when it came into contact with the cold steel of a crab boat. With the wind and seas coming from the northeast, the boat would be riding in the trough the whole way, taking all of the weather on its starboard side. Riding in the trough is unpleasant. It's even more unpleasant with a full load of pots on deck. Their weight can exaggerate a boat's side-to-side roll. But the destination only broke off its northwest course twice during the following day. On both occasions, the boat jogged, slowing down and pointing its bow into the waves. It's common to jog when there's crew out on deck or when there's a problem. But if there was an issue, Hathaway didn't tell anyone about it. At 5 a.m. on the 11th, the boat reached St. George. The island itself would have been invisible in the dark, but in its lee, the wind and seas would have calmed. If the destination was having problems, the lee of St. George would be the best place to stop and deal with them. But it didn't stop. By 6 a.m., the boat had cleared the island and was back out in the open ocean. At 6.10, according to the vessel's automated tracking system, the boat slowed down and turned northeast, again jogging into the waves. It was 18 degrees outside, with water temperatures hovering around freezing. For the next two minutes, the destination jogged at three knots. Then, the tracking data shows its bow suddenly swinging to the east. The boat kept turning, tracing an almost 270-degree arc until its bow was facing due west. Then, at 6.14, the destination stopped transmitting. Right around when Bill Prout found the fuel slick, the first Coast Guard aircraft arrived, a fixed-wing C-130. A little while later, a helicopter showed up. Lieutenant Leo Lake was flying. When we got on scene, the we were able to fly basically direct to the 406 EPIRB. I didn't actually watch the uh, Deadliest Catch episode, but uh, my buddy watched it. He said it, it sounded like we were searching for a long time to find the, the EPIRB. And really what happened was we... We got on scene, we came around the north side of St. George Island, and we get a uh, needle that just basically points directly to to whatever we have tuned up, and it, it pointed right to the EPIRB, and we just came to a hover over the top of it, and uh, we were able to vector in one of the other crab boats that was on scene looking as well. That crab boat was the Silver Spray. When Prout's crew pulled in the EPIRB, it was taped to a coil of rope. It was rigged. Somebody taped it. Uh, can you read off the numbers that are associated with this? Uh, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't see it right here. Yeah, stand by one. Can you go? Yeah, I got it. All right, it's uh, EPIRB 1, Alpha, Delta, Charlie, Delta, 4-1, Charlie, 3-0-4-0-0-2-8, Delta. I copy. 1, Alpha, Delta, Charlie, 
So then we did a, a like a sector search, searching that area, saturating it, seeing what else we could find. Kind of like a detective case. You're like, well, where could they possibly be? And uh, the C-130 flew downwind. They went out searching as far down as possible and then came back looking for uh, any raft or, or anything. In the helicopter, we went and we did a shoreline search flying along because it was just north of St. George. The The hope is that if, if someone got off the boat, that they would then make it short. Bill Prout kept searching, too. In addition to the EPIRB, his crew recovered a life ring and a handful of buoys. The Coast Guard sent another C-130, then another helicopter. Even when sunset came and there was still no sign of a life raft, Prout was optimistic. Maybe once it gets dark, we'll be able to see their lights, he told himself. But by 4 a.m., Prout and his crew had been searching for almost 24 hours. They were exhausted. It was a tough decision, he told me. You don't want to give up. The Coast Guard kept searching. In 32-degree water, someone wearing street clothes can't survive longer than a few minutes. In a fully sealed immersion suit, most estimates put survival between four and six hours. In a life raft, it's hard to say. Fishing vessels are required to carry life rafts designed to deploy automatically in an emergency. For the next three days, helicopters and planes scoured the Bering Sea, looking for a tiny orange boat bobbing in the waves. But they came up empty. Larry O'Grady? When a fisherman dies at sea, it's tradition to ring a bell to mark his passing, a nod to the fact that sailors ring the ship's bell at the end of their watch. Hi, Hammock. There were many memorials for the crew of the destination and many bell ringings. In April, the Coast Guard discreetly coordinated a search for the wreck using sonar but didn't find anything in the vicinity of the destination's last transmission. On a second attempt, in July, with an expanded search area, they finally located the boat. The destination was resting on its port side in 250 feet of water, more than two miles from where it last transmitted. Grainy sonar images taken from the surface showed the boat was upright and largely intact, although it appears to be missing the back half of its pot stack. In August, the Coast Guard sent an underwater vehicle to take photos of the wreck, but the current was too strong and it kept getting pushed off course. One of the only clear images it managed to capture was of a small section of the stern of the vessel. Beaming through the murky waters were big, white letters spelling out the first half of the boat's name. Even with that confirmation, the reality of the boat's disappearance has been hard to accept for many who knew the crew well. For Hatfield, who had seen the boat off in Alaska, it was particularly jarring. When you mourn the death of somebody who's lost at sea, it's a different type of grieving. 
you know, there's, there isn't closure. You don't have a body to bury. You know, you don't have a grave. They're just gone. It's just dust in the wind, man. For months, he had nightmares about what might have happened in those last few minutes on the boat. He played the scenarios over and over in his head, wondering what could have happened, how the accident could have been prevented. He imagined in graphic detail exactly how it must have felt as his brother was pulled down into the depths. Even so, Hatfield said he didn't want the dreams to end. I got mixed feelings about them. It brings up a lot of emotions, but at the same time, it's also nice to see everybody's face. When the Coast Guard convened an inquiry into the destination's sinking, Hatfield showed up for every single day. Over the next two weeks, this hearing will investigate the sinking of the fishing vessel destination. In a stuffy conference room in Seattle, Coast Guard investigators questioned a total of 44 people. The destination's owner, former crew members, the mechanic who worked on the steering system, the Coast Guard petty officer who had taken Hathaway's call about leaving port. There's a recurring theme in most disasters, especially those at sea. It's never one thing that dooms a vessel. Instead, a number of small decisions and circumstances, none of which would have been a major problem on its own, together add up to a catastrophe. Those factors often start piling up long before the actual accident. For the destination, one of the first problems investigators identified were the 200 crab pots the crew loaded in Sand Point. The 7x7 steel pots weigh a lot, and loading too many of them can cause a boat to become top-heavy and roll over. So commercial fishing vessels have stability books, basically manuals for loading a boat so that doesn't happen. On the third day of testimony, investigators questioned the naval architect who had written the destination's stability book. Uh, my full name is uh, Richard Etzel. Last name is E-T-S-E-L-L. According to the Destination Stability Book, 200 pots was well within its operating limits. But back in 1993, when Etzel wrote the book, his calculations assumed that each pot weighed just 700 pounds. If that was accurate at the time, for the pots the boat was carrying back then, it was no longer true in 2017. When the Coast Guard pulled up one of the pots from the wreck site, they found it weighed closer to 850 pounds. Multiply those extra 150 pounds by 200 crab pots, and even before the destination loaded up with thousands of pounds of extra bait, it was already tens of thousands of pounds heavier than accounted for in its stability book. And then there was the weather. On day seven, investigators questioned Rick Faced, a former crabber and captain of the April Lane. He had passed the destination when it was in Alaska. And uh, when I saw the destination going by, I was like, oh my God, we are not going to leave port with that stack on board. Faced knew nothing about the weight of the pots or the extra bait, but he had seen the weather forecast. Heavy freezing spray. 
from Dutch Harbor to all the way up to the Cribs. I called my crew up to the wheelhouse and I said, well, look at this. This is, uh, this is something I wouldn't do. I would not leave port tonight without loaded gear on. For fishing vessels in the Bering Sea, freezing spray is a fact of life. But it can be dangerous for crabbers carrying pots. The pot stack provides a large surface area for ice to accumulate, adding even more weight to the top of the boat. Knowing from what I know in my past experiences, it's just I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. Faist explained to his crew that if it were his boat, he would peel off at least a layer or two of pots before leaving port with freezing spray in the forecast. Or better yet, he would wait until it warmed up. We'll never know why Hathaway didn't seem to share those concerns. Maybe it was the memory of barbecuing outside just days earlier, or the fact that freezing spray hadn't been much of a problem in recent years. The winters have been actually pretty warm. Oh, since about 2011, when we had that really heavy ice here. Looking back, Faced wishes he had said something to Hathaway, but he didn't. I don't know how another captain would receive that, especially if I don't have a cell phone number to, you know, say something like that over the VHF. <laughs> Faced also wasn't sure in the moment if the destination was really leaving harbor or was just changing docks. With the quota system, there shouldn't have been a rush to leave port. But Hathaway had told Hatfield at dinner that he was trying to meet their delivery date in St. Paul before the plant closed. The plant manager, in his testimony, was adamant that the closing date was simply a target, and that the plant would have stayed open until the crab was delivered. But it's possible Hathaway felt pressure all the same. Whatever the reason for leaving, there's no question that Faist's concerns were well-founded. The destination definitely accumulated ice on its way to the islands, although it's hard to know how much. Nearby fishing boats reported ice several inches thick. As the destination gathered ice up high on its pot stack, that would have reduced its stability. While most fishing vessels can handle a significant reduction in stability before they capsize, the less stable the boat, the less it takes to knock it over. A big wave, a sharp turn, a sudden change in speed, those can all do it. Remember, this was a boat that had had problems with its steering. In the past, when the boat's rudder jammed hard over to one side or another, it had caused the boat to pitch sideways, like a car going around a corner too fast. With reduced stability, something as small as that could have been catastrophic. But it's possible the final straw was something else. Maybe a wave, maybe some other mechanical issue. The Coast Guard is expected to release the findings of its investigation sometime this year. That may provide some more definitive answers, but there are still likely to be unanswered questions. Like why there was no mayday, and why the Coast Guard didn't find a life raft. On the destination, the life raft was stored behind the wheelhouse in a cradle with an automatic release. Like the EPIRB, the life raft should have automatically deployed on contact with the water. So we're left wondering, did it deploy and sink, or did it never deploy at all? 
Investigators questioned the examiner who had completed the destination's mandatory Coast Guard safety check in the summer of 2016. On the inspection worksheet, he hadn't marked off the life raft's automatic release system. But he testified that he had in fact verified that it worked. Did it? Was it totally iced over? Was there some other problem? We can only guess. Last fall, the Coast Guard decided to weigh dozens of boats' crab pots before the season opened to see if they were heavier than the weight listed in their stability books. Most of them were. For many in the fleet, the accident has been a wake-up call after so many years without one. Michelle Grunholt, the bartender in Sand Point, who saw the crew on Super Bowl Sunday, has always made a habit of telling captains to be safe. But it's taken on a new significance. It's tough to talk to the captains, you know, that come in here. Those, those were our boys, you know. The boat's loss hit Sandpoint hard. In such a small town, there were few people who didn't know the crew or their families personally. For Dylan Hatfield, losing his brother, his mentor, and his closest friends has been nothing short of devastating. He spent the summer fishing for salmon in the more protected waters of southeast Alaska, but when the time came to return to the Bering Sea for crab season, he found himself paralyzed. I really thought I was going to go king crab fishing until like the day I was supposed to leave or the day before because I couldn't even get myself to even pack. Hatfield wanted to be like Hathaway pointing matter-of-factly at the video of all the guys who had died. Instead, he just felt defeated. Behind the scenes with everything, it's like I'm so turned off by it all. I'm just not fucking into it. My heart's not in it anymore. Hatfield is going to keep fishing, but he doesn't plan to go back to the Bering Sea. Another former crew member, who is slated to eventually take over as captain of the destination, has quit commercial fishing altogether. In August, Deadliest Catch ran an episode about the sinking of the destination. It was, of course, the first catastrophe of its kind in more than a decade. But you wouldn't have known that from watching. The thing about crab fishing, though, is you it's just like war. You got to put it behind you and just keep moving forward. That's the risk we take. The episode didn't dwell on icing or too heavy pots or missed safety checks. There was no passing reflection on how to make crab fishing safer. The show's title promises disaster, and the episode enthusiastically delivered. The show's upcoming season starts next week. According to a press release, they're planning to kick it off with a tribute to the destination. This episode was written and produced by Stephanie Joyce. Music by Robbie Carver. It was edited by me, Peter Frickwright. It was brought to you by Saris and the new Glide Bike Rack, which makes it easy to have bikes on the back of your car where they belong. 
and then still use your car. Find it in your local bike shop. Stephanie Joyce will be back. She's producing a special series for us and interviewing athletes, conservationists, and basically the most interesting people we could find. That kicks off next week with a story about Chris Tompkins, the woman who built Patagonia into the brand it is today, but who you never hear about. Possibly because in 1993, she walked away from the job and went and did something even more incredible. And it was kind of unsettling. I'm not used to people disliking me. I mean, they don't have to really like me, but they don't have to actively dislike me. So that took some getting used to. And yeah, you don't want to be seen in the press every day as someone who's suspect and starting a cult and all the other things that were said. That's next week 